Please take your copy of God's Word and let's turn together uh, to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24, our text really is the entire chapter, all 67 verses. Uh, but don't worry, we're not going to read the entire passage this morning. Um, but we will look at the entire passage. And one of the things we have to note is really from the high point of Abraham's story in Genesis chapter 22, uh, when he offers up Isaac to the Lord and the Lord says, now I know you fear me. Really, these last chapters, chapter 23, 24, and 25, represent a kind of denouement, a kind of tying up of loose ends. Sarah dies, and uh, Abraham buys a stake in the promised land by providing a grave for Sarah, yes, but also for his generations after them in chapter 23. Here in chapter 24, he's going to secure a, a bride for Isaac. And then chapter 25, he dies. Uh, and the story will transition then to the next generations, to Isaac, and above all, to Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. And so in many ways, this is we're right at the end of the Abraham story. And from the beginning of the Abraham story to the very end of the Abraham story, we see the faithfulness of our God uh, all throughout these sermons on Genesis. I'm trying to stress for us uh, this theme that you find throughout the book, that our God is both good and gracious. We see how good and gracious our God is, especially in the lengths that he will go to secure a bride for Isaac, yes, but also to secure a bride for himself, namely you and me. In order to hear the gospel this morning, we need the help of God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you for your kindness to us as your people that you do not cause us to wander through this world with our own foolish wisdom, but rather you teach us the fear of the Lord by teaching us your own word. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Open our eyes of faith this morning that we might delight in your teaching. It might be like streams of water uh, or trees planted by streams of water that bear its fruit in good time. Lord, grant us this grace we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read the first 28 verses uh, of Genesis chapter 24. So beginning then in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go, go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. 
Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahar, Abraham's brother came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran up to meet her and said, Please give me a little drink, water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room at your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahar. She added, we have plenty, both of straw and fodder, and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Thus far, God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I have to confess that as a, as a teenager, honestly, I was, I was pretty girl crazy. Uh, but, but, but my parents had really strict standards uh, about whom I was to date, and so I tried really, really hard as a teenager to work my way around them. Uh, one time when I was 16 years old, I was at a youth winter retreat, and there was this girl there who had come with some of her friends. She had, she had never been to the youth group before, but she was, she was pretty, and I wanted to hang out with her. I wanted to go out with her. But she was, seemed to be at least, exactly the kind of girl whom my parents had forbade me from dating. And so I decided to pray about it. Uh, during one of the breaks of the retreat, I went out into the woods. It was a beautiful scene. The snow was falling. The trees were just unbelievable. There was a creek running by the retreat center. And I looked up into the sky and I said, Oh Lord, 
should I ask this girl out? Please show me a sign. Well, the birds tweeted, and the wind blew, and the snow continued to fall, but there was no voice. There was no answer. And so I went back to the retreat center, and guess what? Guess who the first person I encountered was? You're right, it was that girl. The sign was given, and the sign was fulfilled. However, when I got home, and I tried to explain all of this to my parents, they were not Please. And so I told them all about what happened. And I, I told them, I, hey, I prayed about this. And the Lord had given this sign. And my dad said at that time, memorably, he said, well, what did you expect God to do in response to your prayer? Drop a tree on your head? But I mentioned that because on the surface, what I did that day as a 16-year-old, it looks similar, doesn't it, to what Abraham's servant does here. After all, the, the servant's praying to God for a marriageable girl for Isaac, and he asks for a sign, and the Lord answers his request. And, and maybe that's the point of the whole passage, right? Well, I, I think you know that that's not the case, and yet you'd be surprised how many sermons have been preached through the years about dating and marriage from this passage, Genesis 24. I remember memorably preachers telling, preaching on this text and telling s stories of young women who would place uh, a pair of pants over the end of the bed and pray that the Lord would send a man to fill those pants. But if that's not what this chapter is doing in the Bible, then we have to ask the question, well, what's going on here? Why is Genesis 24 in our Bibles? And, and what role does it play in the story of Abraham? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that I think what's going on here is God is showing us the links that he will go in order to fulfill his promises to Abraham. All the way back to Genesis chapter 12, we've, been see, we've seen this play out. God there had made a promise to Abraham concerning becoming a great nation, having a great name. Through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we've been seeing how God would keep those promises, how God would, would help him have become a great nation, having children, this child Isaac, having a stake in the promised land. But Abraham doesn't want to see simply one generation. He wants to see many generations. He wants to be assured that, that his family his, and the promises that are attached to his family don't come to an end after just one generation. He needs to see Isaac married. He needs to have the hope of grandchildren. And so in this chapter, I want to suggest to you, we see the lengths to which God will go in order to keep his promise, in, in order to seek and secure a bride. But, but not just a bride for Isaac. Because this chapter is actually another piece in the larger salvation story that the Bible is unfolding. It, it shows us what God is ultimately doing in his world. God is actually not securing a single ethnic people. No, he is securing a people drawn from the nations, which means this chapter is showing us the links that, that God will go in order to secure a bride, not just for Isaac, 
to keep his promises not just to Abraham, but ultimately to keep his promises to his people and to secure a bride for himself. Which means then ultimately what we see here in this chapter is the lengths to which God will go in order to secure you for himself. You and I. We are part of Christ's bride. And our God desires relationship with us. He wants to know union and communion with you and me. And he'll stop at nothing in order to woo and win you for himself. I mean, you see that in the way that he's at work here. In the ways that he's at work securing a bride for Isaac. Uh, of course, Abraham wants this to happen because he's old. That's what the very first verse of the chapter tells you. You see it there in your Bibles. It says, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. Actually, he's 140 years at this point. We know that because chapter 25 will tell us that Isaac was 40 years old when he got married. We know that Abraham was 100 years when he was born. So let's do the math. He, Abraham's 140 years old. And he's not certain he has many years left. And so he wants to be busy about the business of securing a bride for Isaac. And so he calls his most trusted servant, the one who had been with him the longest, the one who was his steward, his, his chief operating officer, if you will, to come and, and to take this task on. And that's what the rest of the story unfolds. And in order to understand this text, we're going to ask at least three questions of it. The first question we need to ask is, what's at stake here? The second question is, what's required? The final question, who's really in charge? So first then, what's at stake here? What, what's at stake in Abraham calling the servant to come and to take this oath? What's at stake? Well, well, it's pretty clear that the promises of God are at stake. And God's promises, remember, about, are about Abraham's people and his place. God had promised Abraham he would be a great nation. A great nation requires a posterity and a land. And in light of what Abraham tells his servants, you can tell that, that Abraham is very, very concerned about those two things. He's concerned about his posterity, this people that God's promised him, and he's concerned about the land. And on one hand, as he's, as he's speaking to his servant, you can hear he is afraid. Look at verse 2. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you will go to my country and to my kindred, and take a wife for my servant Isaac. And after the servant questions him, what if, what if the woman doesn't come back? Should I take Abraham, or Isaac with me? Abraham says, verse 6, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Now Abraham here seems to be going in two directions, doesn't he? Now on the one hand, he says to his servant, you cannot choose a woman from these Canaanites around us. So you... Eliminate them as a possible pool of wives. But you also cannot take my son Isaac back to where I'm from. Now, now what's going on here? Seems to limit his servant's choices, doesn't it? Well, well, Abraham's afraid. 
He's afraid that if Isaac marries a local girl, a local Canaanite, that ultimately the line of Abraham would simply been, be swallowed up, be subsumed by the, the Canaanites, and his, and his family would cease to be a distinctive people in the land. But on the other hand, he's afraid that if Isaac goes back to Haran, back to Nahor, where he's from, that, that he's going to leave the land and not return. And so you can see how, how Abraham's fear moves into directions right on the promises of God. I'm concerned that we might not be a distinctive people. I'm, just, I'm concerned, I'm afraid that we will lose our place in the land. And yet on the other hand, though he's afraid, he's also believing in the midst of his fears. So look at verse 7. In the midst of it, he says, See to it that you do not take my son there, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Notice what he's doing. First, Abraham recalls various truths about God. I mean, he recalls God's nature, Yahweh, the God of heaven, Yahweh, the covenant maker who rules, just like we prayed this morning, our father in heaven. Yes, that's what he recalls about God's nature. This God who's made promises, he rules in the heavens. He also recalls God's history with him, who took me from my father's house. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and remembers the initial call how God called him to himself. And he remembers too all of God's promises to him. Especially summed up to your offspring I will give this land. And then based on those remembrances. Based on those recollections of who God is for him. Abraham moves to a spirit inspired confidence. A conclusion. He will send his angel before you. The same angel of the Lord that, that has met me in chapter 18 and told me of Isaac, he will not abandon me. He will go before you. That was his conclusion. Now, friends, these are the last words we have from Abraham. He's not going to speak again in the rest of chapter 24. And we're not going to hear from him in chapter 25 before he dies. These are the last words. And in these last words... You see how far Abraham has come in 65 years. Yes, he's afraid. Yes, he's fearful. And yet, in the midst of his fears, he doesn't take counsel of them. He doesn't listen to his fear. He, he doesn't give wind to them. But rather, in the midst of his fear, he trusts in God. He, he's come to believe in this God and, and have proven his character of who this God is, the God of heaven who rules. He's come to trust his promises and recognize that this God is able to keep the promises that he's made. Now, friends, if, if this Abraham, who was so fearful of a famine in the land that he rushed off to Egypt and put the promises in danger back in Genesis chapter 12, can come this far in 12 chapters, what about you and me? Because let's be honest, we're afraid. We're fearful. We're anxious. You couldn't have watched what happened on Wednesday on television and not been afraid, not been fearful. 
You couldn't receive the, the telephone call that some of you received this week and not be afraid, not be fearful. To find your place in the workplace, yes, the market's going up, but we know on the ground that economically things are challenging for every business out there. And not be afraid. And yet, Abraham models for us what discipleship looks like in the midst of our fears. We're trusting in the true king of the world, the God of heaven and earth. We, we, we prove in him. We trust in him. Here in Abraham, we, we see what it looks like to be a follower of our God. Yes, he's afraid, but he knows that God knows. that What's at stake is his ability to keep his promises. And this God is able to keep his promises because he's the God of heaven and earth. And we can't even account the lengths to which he will go in order to, to make sure that his promises are realized in his time and in his way and in his place. What's at stake? God's promises. But what's required? That's another question we need to ask of this text. Well, of course, a journey is required. 520 miles from Hebron back up to Haran. A journey that would take approximately 21 to 25 days but there were three things in particular that I want to mention to you this morning that were especially required if there was going to be a bride for Isaac. And the first thing that was required is prayer. I mean, when the servant arrives at Haran, which is also called Nahor in this text, what does he do? Well, he prays. Well, you see it in verse 12. Um, he says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the string of, spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now, this prayer is interesting for at least two reasons. Uh, the first is the sign. The sign that he asks for is really, really significant. I mean, we look at this because we don't understand, and we say, oh, water the camels. Eh, that's not a biggie. Now, actually, watering the camels here is actually a really big ask. Old Testament scholars tell us that a, a camel that's done just a few days' journey could drink up to 25 gallons this servant has 10 camels, so doing the math again, that's 250 gallons. The water jug that Rebecca is holding holds three gallons, which means that to water the, the camels, that's looking at 80 to 100 trips to the well. That, that's far beyond any honest expectation, far beyond the requirements of hospitality. It truly would be a remarkable thing, a sign worthy of fulfillment. But the second thing, and more importantly, I think, in this prayer is that the servant invokes God's steadfast love twice. He invokes God's chesed, his, his covenant loyalty, his steadfast love to Abraham. He does it in verse 12. Uh, you see it, uh, O Lord, O God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And then at the end of the prayer, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. This, this 
chesed, this, this covenant loyalty, this steadfast love. It's this Old Testament theme, a little motif that works its way all the way through the Old Testament. The same steadfast love that the servant is asking God to show to Abraham is the same steadfast love, the same covenant loyalty that God shows to you. To you. Every time you pray, you count on the fact that God will continue to show chesed, steadfast love to you. And so the servant prays just this way, and God answers his prayer even before he's done speaking, right? Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, look, Rebecca, here she is. She comes. She gives water to the servant upon his request. She offers to water his camels. And we begin to see how it is that God is going to keep his promises to Abraham. What's required? Yes, prayer. But there's another thing that's required here, and that's persuasion. Uh, Rebecca runs back to her house after the exchange with the servant, gets her brother Laban. Laban sees all the gold. His greed is activated and invites the servant uh, and his fellow servants into their home. And that's where the negotiation begins. And from verse 34 to verse 49 in this chapter, you and I receive a master class in persuasion. Now, first he identifies himself. He tells Rebecca's family he's actually Abraham's servant, their kinsman. Remember him? And the other thing he tells them is that he has a task. He's to secure a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. But then he gives three other things here that are meant to persuade them. First, he tells the family, and perhaps looking at Laban, Isaac's really rich. You see all this wealth that I've brought, just a, a portion of Abraham's wealth? All that Abraham has, it's been left to Isaac. Guess what? Isaac's really rich. But the second thing he tells them in order to persuade them, and again, far more importantly, is that God's at work. He recounts the entire scene with the prayer, recounts the sign, recounts what Rebecca does without manipulation, Without suggestion, it's clear that, that God has answered his prayer through Rebecca's actions. And having told them, hey, you know my kinsman, he's left everything to his son, and God is at work. He then says to them, are you going to stand in God's way? That's essentially what he says at the, end of the, at the end of his speech. He says, let me know this day. Let me know if, I'm going to, if you're going to show chesed and faithfulness to my master. If not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Are you going to disagree with God? I mean, wow. Talk about turning the screws on Rebecca's kinfolk, especially Laman, who's leading these negotiations. And so there's, there's persuasion at work here. And ultimately, of course, we know the servant's successful. Laban and his parents are persuaded. They agree that Rebecca may marry Isaac, who's never named here. He's simply called Abraham's son. But there's one last thing that's required. Yes, prayer and yes, persuasion, but, but ultimately, faith-filled action. There has to be action, isn't there? The next morning, the servant wants to be back, wants to be off, heading back to his, his master. After all, he's got 21 to 25 days in order to journey back. Who knows how long Abraham will live, but the, but the family... In the cold light of morning, they want to wait. They say, well, maybe your intentions weren't entirely correct. How can we really trust that you are telling the truth? 
How do we know? Finally, the entire question is put to Rebecca. Will you go with this man to a place you have never been to marry a man you have never met? Wow. There is a question for you. What does Rebecca say? Her faith-filled action. I, yes, I will go. And she does. And then in the final denouement of the entire scene, verse 67, you have this little beautiful note. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That's the first time in Genesis that we hear in the words of Percy Sledge that a man loves a woman. It's an indication of true affection, of true delight that the bridegroom has in the bride. It's this beautiful little final word. And that's how God's promises are kept to Abraham. So all these things that happen, prayer and persuasion and faith-filled action, but in the midst of all of these human actions, we have to ask the question then, who's really in charge? Who's the one who's actually orchestrating all of these things? Well, God is. God's the one who's in charge. He, though he uses means, he uses the servant, he uses the oath, he uses the prayer, persuasion, the camels, the gifts, Laban's greed, Rebecca's faithful action. Yet God's the one who's, who's faithfully at work in all of this. That's what we mean by providence, after all. Our catechism teaches us that providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And this entire scene shows us what that looks like. How God preserves, yes. How God governs. But ultimately, the links to which God will go in order to make sure that his promises do not fail. He had promised Abraham 65 years before, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have a great name. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here's the links to which I will go. I'll use a servant traveling 520 miles to his prayer and persuasion and Rebecca's response to make sure that my promises do not fail. Now, friends, if God will go to these links in order to secure a bride for Isaac, I want you to consider with me briefly this morning the links he will go to secure a bride for Abraham's far greater son, Jesus Christ. I mean, just think for a moment. Think about all that God has done in order to secure a bride for his own son. I mean, think about what he did. This God who in all eternity, from all eternity, enjoyed perfect fellowship within his own self. They, he, God plotted, covenanted together in order to secure the salvation of a people so that God's name might be honored and glorified. And, and there was a pact that was made so that the eternal Son of God agreed to take on this embassy. And though he was rich, indeed rich beyond all splendor, having the cattle on a thousand hills, having this entire world that was his because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. Indeed, the very Lord of glory, who has earth as his footstool, he came as a carpenter's son. 
He came as, as lower class. He didn't have a lot. He didn't dwell in palaces. He didn't wear fine robes. He didn't know luxury. This is the creator after all. The one who spoke worlds into existence. Nothing was made, John says, apart from him. And yet this one who is the creator as the eternal spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable spirit, he became a creation. He became a creature. He took on human form. It was Israel's glory. In the very Shekinah glory of God, he, he dwelt over the tabernacle and he dwelt in the, in the temple. His light was so bright as Israel's glory that the priests could not even enter in. In order to do their work, he embraced obscurity. He was known as the Nazarene. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, it was said? He had thousands of angels at his command. He was known as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies. At a, at a moment's notice, he could have called 10,000 legions of angels, he said. And yet, he took 12 disciples as his own. Rough men. Uneducated men. And he called them as his friends. His hands had shaped the world. They had built up mountains and dug out canyons and shaped the Nile River and the Amazon and every other river beside. Those hands that flung stars into existence were nailed to a cross. And his feet that had walked through Eden in the cool of the day, accompanying Adam and Eve, his first created beings, they were pierced. And he used those pierced feet to struggle up the cross in order to breathe. And his mouth, which had spoke the worlds, let there be light, and light shone, tasted bitterness and gall. He had known perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. And in the noon hour of that day we call Good Friday, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do all of this? Why did God, in and through Jesus Christ, do all of this to seek a bride? To seek a bride for himself. A people that might know union and communion. Real relationship with the God of heaven and earth. That's why he did that. That's what we've heard already this morning. In the call to worship. The great song about the king. And his beauty and his excellency. And his bride that he has chosen. To come and know relationship with him. That's what we heard in the assurance of pardon. From Isaiah chapter 62. That God would rejoice over us as a, as a husband rejoices over a bride. So your God rejoices over you. And there's many other passages beside that show us that this is God's purpose. That's his promise. He's come to seek a bride for himself. And I ask you this morning, who is that bride? Well, friend, it's you. He came for you. For you. He, he came for you, he came to delight over you and to rejoice over you and to cherish you and to sing over you. And these are the links to which God will go in order to secure you to be part of his people that he would call his bride. From heaven, he came and sought you to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought you. And for your own life, he died. How should you respond 
to this delight and love, this chesed, the steadfast love that God has shown you, the lengths to which you would go in order to secure you for himself, that he might know real relationship with you. I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't your response be what we already sang this morning? Thou only source of true delight, whom I unseen adore? Shouldn't, shouldn't that be your response? Because this, this God in Jesus Christ, he's come for you. He's come to seek you. He's come to delight in you. Oh, friend, you're at the beginning of a new year. Perhaps you've, you've gotten distracted by so many things. You're at the beginning of a new year. Won't you, won't you hear again the good news? This God loves you. Loves you. That's the good news. And he knows everything that you are, and he knows everything that you've done. He knows you're a mess. He knows you're broken. He knows it all, and he loves you still, and he pursues you still. Here at the beginning of this new year, won't you respond in the same way? Won't you respond to him and say, oh, Lord, I don't deserve your love, but I bless you for it. And I do desire you. I do delight in you. Lord, grant that I might love you more. Grant that I might delight in you more. Grant that I might rejoice and praise you yet more. Grant that I might know you and be known by you. How will you respond to such love as this? Will you not delight in him? Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, we could easily sing this morning, what wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this that would cause the Lord of bliss to take the dreadful curse for my soul? Lord, we, we confess that we can, we can barely grasp hold of the central truth of the gospel that God, you so love the world that you gave your one and only son for us, that you might seek us as your own bride. But Lord, please grant us grace to grasp just a little bit more, to understand just a little bit more, to believe just a little bit more, to live in the light of this just a little bit more. Lord, grant us this grace we ask, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.